0: Alright, this morning we're going to be in chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And we're going to go all the way through verse 36. Now you'll notice, what does the title say there right above verse 20? The Beatitudes. Where else do we see the Beatitudes? Where? Matthew Matthew chapter 5, right? So, you'll notice between Luke's account of the sermon, and Matthew's account of this sermon have quite a few differences in them. Number one, especially like in the Beatitudes, which is what we're primarily focused on today, the one in Luke is shorter. It has basically four, while Matthew's has nine. Um, Matthew's Beatitudes has some qualifiers in them, and Luke's doesn't, such as Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, while Luke's just says, Blessed are you who are poor. Okay? So, in the spirit would be the qualifier. The setting also seems a little bit different. Matthew's is called the Sermon on the Mount, while Luke's is sometimes referred to as Sermon on the Plain. And the reason is because if you look back up in verse 17, it says that he stood. On a level place, and as a result, that's why people call this the Sermon on the Plain. And some may argue that these are two different sermons um, that were at different times, while others say that they're just two different viewpoints of the same sermon. How many of y'all? What is that game where you somebody starts says something, and then it goes? Yeah, telephone. There you go. So. You know how that works. Sometimes somebody hears something that somebody else doesn't hear. So we don't know exactly what the situation is here, whether these are two different sermons or whether they're one sermon with two different outlooks on what Jesus was teaching. But whatever the difference is, we're going to study this uh, as it is written, but we're also going to uh, find that the principles are going to be the same as what we see in Matthew. We also need to remember that Matthew, the difference between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, is that Matthew's gospel seems to have some chronology with it, okay? While Luke's gospel seems to have some snapshots of different accounts, uh, like we see in some passages where he says, and on another Sabbath, this happened, or on this occasion, or on one occasion, this happened. It's kind of like somebody telling a story, say, oh, one time I did this, and this, and this, Okay. Now, there's some chronology to it, but it's not like what Matthew's has done. So those are some differences. So what we need to do before we get into this is let's let's look at the circumstances of what's going on here uh, before we get into verse 20. He says that there's a great crowd of disciples. If you look back up again in verse 17, a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so many of them came to hear um, Jesus teach. But also a lot of them came to be healed. Or they had heard that Jesus had healed everybody that came to him back in chapter 4. Y'all remember that? I mean, he was healing people just left and right. People were touching him and all kinds of stuff. And so... They, this word is spreading all over the place. So they've got people from all over the region. They're coming and they, they may not necessarily be a disciple, which a disciple is what? A follower. a follower. That's right. They may not necessarily be a disciple. They may just be curious or they may want to come and have Jesus heal them or whatever the case may be. So you've got a pretty good variety of people who are here, but it's a, a huge, huge crowd. So a few weeks ago, Tim reminded us in his lesson for the reason of the healings that Jesus and the apostles did in the New Testament. And what was the purpose behind those healings? Authentication, Authentication okay, to bring validity to the message, right? Um, it wasn't so that these people would go throughout their lives with no infirmities, no injuries or anything like that, right? The purpose of it was to bring validity to the gospel. And the primary focus that we need to remember of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles was the kingdom of God. This is the primary focus. And remember, if we look back in in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So if we we look at that, he says, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So does that mean that the gospel message is only to poor people? Okay, so this is going to help us as we try to interpret the scripture today. So his message wasn't necessarily about the here and now. How can I heal you? How can I make you more comfortable in this world? But it was about the gospel. And the, the gospel was basically this that we see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and listen to this, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So we need to remember and we need to keep this in mind as we interpret all of the gospels especially. We need to remember that the purpose behind these messages is to bring, he's bringing in, he's ushering in the kingdom of God. So, what we see here in verses 20 through verse uh, 26 is we see blessings and we see woes. And we've seen this before in Scripture, back in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is where Moses... Of course, Deuteronomy is basically a speech that Moses is giving, and this is before they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses says... In verses 15 through 20, he says this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But. If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So um, Moses says that if you do these things, you will be blessed, right? And if you don't do these things, then you will be cursed. Jesus' blessings and curses are a little bit different here. Number one, we know that we cannot follow the law, right? And as a matter of fact, our righteousness is not attained by following the law. Uh, as a matter of fact, we we can't even we can't do it. We're incapable of it. I, I am. Anybody here capable? Anybody? Okay. I just wanted to make sure before I moved on. So, if that's the case, I would have y'all up here teaching this lesson instead of me. <laughs> so. We see that the New Testament is packed full of passages that tell us that we can never be righteous by following the law. And so Jesus is teaching something different here other than following the law. And so as we look into verse 20, it says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the first thing we need to notice is who is he addressing? Now, remember, there's a great multitude of people here. There's people from all over the region as well as disciples. Now, remember, he has chosen the twelve previously. And so the twelve are there along with other disciples. Now, disciple literally means follower. These, These could just be people who have been following Jesus for some time. doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be true followers of Christ. But for now, they are. They're following Jesus just to see what what he's teaching, to see what he's doing. And so he he says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So these are the people that are following him. And there's no coincidence that he's preaching this sermon after choosing the twelve. And before he sends them out to preach throughout the towns of Galilee in chapter nine. He did this so that he could teach them what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. So that when they go out and they teach, they know what they're talking about. Another thing that we notice here um, is that Matthew, in Matthews it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? While Luke says, Blessed are you who are poor. Notice the difference. In Matthew it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's like kind of a third person type you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Whereas Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. It's almost like he's speaking directly to his disciples, knowing what many of them are going to be going through after the, as a result of following him. So let's ask the question then, what does it mean to be Blessed. This word blessed is the same word that is applied to God himself in First 1 Timothy 1.11. It says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And one commentator describes it like this. He says, makarios, which is the Greek word here, says, then describes that joy, which has its secret within itself, that joy, which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, That joy which completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life. So in other words, this blessedness has nothing to do with our circumstances. It goes so so far beyond that. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 34, Jesus said on the day of judgment that he would say to his people, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But we also need to notice here that the word blessed is expressed in the present tense. Blessed are you not blessed. You will be y'all notice that blessed are you who are poor. Okay. So we kind of define what it means to be blessed, but now let's see what he may be talking about the poor. Now I've, I've, I've gone through all kinds of commentaries. I've really struggled with this this week. This has been a tough one. Uh, I've had to start over, what, how many times, Christine? Three, four, five, six times. And the reason is because everybody's got a different opinion on what Luke is talking about here. Everybody has a different opinion. They say that Matthew is talking about, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's talking about something on a deeper level, spiritual truths, right? Whereas Luke is talking about literally people who are poor. I've heard people talking about that. And so the more I study, the more I struggled with this passage this week, I don't believe that that's what's going on here. Even if these are two different sermons, when Jesus is teaching, we're, we're going to see a lot in Luke that we also see in Matthew. And I don't believe that Jesus would teach one thing using the same type of language and then mean something else in a different sermon. So I believe that we can apply the principles that we find in Matthew to what we see here in Luke. Now, when he says, blessed are the, you who are poor, this word poor, Jesus uses a word that describes severe poverty and that's what the word means in the greek it means deeply destitute completely lacking resources it is the idea that a person's only option was to beg for whatever they got now this person cannot provide anything for themselves they are completely dependent upon others for their needs And we can say that Jesus may have been referring to the financial situation or the shape of those who would leave everything to follow him. Which may be true in some cases, right? But remember that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom and kingdom principles. So we have to remember that as we're trying to interpret the scripture. And we can't dismiss what Jesus said in Matthew that those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. And so this means that Those that have no righteousness of their own to offer. They are completely dependent on the righteousness of Christ. These are the ones who are blessed. And we know that back in Romans chapter 3 it says that no one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. And in Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 through 9 says this. And remember this is Paul saying look. Look. I mean, we all know that Paul was a Pharisee. Paul, I mean, when it comes to how good you look as a, as a uh, religious leader, Paul was the dude, right? That's the technical jargon of it, the dude. So Paul begins, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So while Paul may have this wonderful resume that he can wow the Pharisees and the Jews with, Paul says that he considers all of this nothing but trash. And he counts it all as loss for the, for the, for the one purpose of seeking the righteousness that can only come through Christ. So, when we see, when he says, blessed are you who are poor, I believe firmly that he's referring to those who recognize the fact that they have nothing to offer. That there is no righteousness that they can offer. There's nothing that they can do to gain their salvation. These are the people who are blessed. What is the result of that blessing? He said, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this is our inheritance, right? Our inheritance. And how many of you would like to have a rich uncle, you know, that's got millions of dollars and you're just kind of waiting around for him to die? Did I say that out loud? (laughs) You may have some blood pressure issues, and you're putting a bunch of salt on his food, right? No. doesn't mean he's going to leak in anything. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not giving anyone ideas, okay? <laughs> some of you, Christy's going to scold me after this one. But
1: I'm making notes. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> some of you might have a rich uncle, I don't know, but... Um, You wait around patiently. Wait patiently. But listen to this James 2 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And again, he's not talking about poor as those who are in poverty, physically, financially. I believe he's talking exactly what we're talking about today in kingdom principles, meaning that we have nothing to offer. Everything that we have that may count as righteousness is nothing but rubbish. It is trash. And we consider it all loss for the sake of gaining the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 9, I love this verse here in this context. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So when it says, though he was rich, what's he talking about? I mean, was Jesus some big time wealthy carpenter before he started his ministry and he's doing all these housing developments and and sky rise, you know, (laughs) condominiums and things like that? Is that what he's talking about? Jesus, think about who Jesus is and where he came from. He was in the presence of God. He was and is God. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the owner of the universe and everything in it, though he was rich. Okay? This is how we might be able to define that. But he left all of that. He became poor to come in human form so that we might become rich. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So when he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, it meant that he was not clinging on to this, saying, I'm not going to earth. If I do go to earth, I want to make sure that I take all of my glory with me. But that's not what he did. He humbled himself so that the creator would become the created. Subject to all of the, the... the ailments and the misery of this human body. And those of us, when we get older, we know more and more and more what those are. Am I right? Amen? Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you. But not only that, he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross, because we know that the Bible says that cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. This is what Christ did on our behalf. Though he was rich, he became poor. So when he talks about ours is the kingdom of God, and we, and we said that this is our inheritance, let's look into that. What exactly is he referring to as our inheritance being the kingdom of God? Again, we talked about the rich uncle. We're waiting around, you know, somebody to, or whatever, <laughs> hoping, you know, that he's going to pass away and leave us all kinds of money. But it doesn't matter if Bill Gates is your rich uncle. It cannot begin to compare with what we are going to inherit in Christ. Amen. Nothing can compare. Romans 6, uh, excuse me, Romans 8:16 through 17. Paul says the spirit himself bears witness with our witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And children then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the good news is here that not only are we heirs of God, but we are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And then he puts a little kicker there, says provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, does that mean that all of our life is going to be suffering? And if we don't suffer enough, then we're not going to inherit this inheritance. No, it means that we continue to live faithfully within this fallen nature that we have even though God has given us a new nature in Christ, we still struggle, don't we? We still suffer. We still face trials. We still face persecutions. We still have all kinds of issues that we have to deal with on a daily basis. But we continue to keep our eyes on Christ and on the prize which he has laid before us. That's what he's referring to here. The term heirs refers to those who receive their allotted possession by rights of sonship. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, listen to this, He has caused us to be born again. I love that phrase right there. This is all God. He has caused us to be born again. to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So after looking at what it means to be blessed, what it means to be poor, uh, what our inheritance is, let's see if we can translate this verse again in, in, in a little bit different words. This would be the Ted Sally version of this, I guess. It's not it's not inspired, so please don't say anything about that. So it says, so to translate this verse again, we would say, blessed are you who are completely and utterly dependent upon the righteousness of Christ because you have no righteousness of your own to offer. For you have become an heir to an inheritance that includes the rights to everything that is owned by Christ himself because you have been adopted into the family of God. Now, if I don't light your fire, your wood is wet. (laughs) So, we could probably say that, that Jesus is, was saying in some point to the disciples that they are blessed because they left everything behind to follow him. Look at Matthew, though. I mean, he, the, not the book, but the, the apostle. You think Matthew had some money? Yeah. What was he? Tax he was a tax collector, right? I mean... He left everything to follow Christ. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler came up to Him and said, hey, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and follow Me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. And so... His disciples then asked the question, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So if you think about what this Jesus is telling his, his disciples here, he says, in this culture, they consider those who are rich to be blessed by God. And so they're saying, if a rich man can't be saved, then who can? Jesus, so Jesus is saying basically that if the most blessed man in your eyes that you know can't be saved, then no one can. Only God can save. So while Jesus could be addressing those who were financially poor, He could be, I believe that He's looking much further to those who realize that they have nothing to offer. That they are spiritually poor. Now look at verse 21. Hey, we got through one verse, and it's I got 15 minutes left. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So, I don't know that we in this culture really know what it means to be hungry. I mean, to us, hungry is like it's 10 minutes till 12 church sitting in church you know and our stomach's starting to growl and we're waiting for the lord's supper to be done so we can go eat right is that what we consider to be hunger i mean unfortunately yeah. i mean well actually it's a fortunate thing for us we don't really know what real hunger is we just think when our stomach starts rumbling we're hungry and if i haven't eaten in five hours i tell my wife i'm starving Back in the late 70s, my parents founded World Hunger Relief Incorporated in Waco, Texas. They were gospel singers. They traveled all over the country singing concerts in these churches everywhere. And my dad was also a builder and a developer. And so they didn't really need any money. But whenever they'd go to these concerts, these churches would take up a love offering for them and give it to them. And they didn't know what to do with this money. And so they read this book called, What Do You Say to a Hungry World? And they also knew that this missionary was coming back in from Bangladesh because his son had had a nervous breakdown, so they had to come back to the States. And so they sat down and started talking to this missionary. And he had had this dream of building a volunteer, like an experimental farm, where he could teach missionaries, volunteer missionaries, how to... uh, feed themselves basically a food cycle and so we had this farm at our house we had 16 acres we had this farm and we had rabbits we had 500 rabbits and i fed every stinking rabbit every stinking day and i got sick and tired of rabbits i can tell you that but underneath the rabbits we had this bed of dirt with worms in it And so the rabbit droppings would come down through the cage and the worms would eat the rabbit droppings and it would have very, very rich fertilizer. And they would take this fertilizer and they would put it in a small grow bed, which where they grew all of their vegetables. And so they had vegetables to eat and then the roughage left over from the vegetables they would feed back to the rabbits. So it was a cycle. And they did several other things as well, not just that, but they would teach these missionaries these things and then they would send them to Bangladesh and Haiti and show these starving people how to feed themselves and then share Christ with them at the same time. And that was back in the late 70s, and and now it's worldwide. And it's just, it's unbelievable. Y'all can actually go to Waco, to the volunteer farm, to the World Hunger Farm, and see what's going on. And my parents, they're, they're up in their 80s. You know, they're not really that involved anymore, but they'll go down there every once in a while, and everybody just, you know, just makes them feel so good because, you know, they were the original founders of it. But the thing is, though, is going through that as I was growing up, although I didn't go to Bangladesh or Haiti, we saw a lot of pictures of what was going on. And I don't know if you've ever actually seen starving people. But it's a horrible sight. Imagine that the only focus in your mind is where your next meal is coming from. That's all you can think about. And so when G- when Jesus said. Blessed are you who are hungry. For you shall be satisfied. Hunger is something that is natural to our bodies. If we don't eat, our body has a way of telling us. Extreme hunger can cause some serious Problems. Chronic fatigue, trouble concentrating, slower healing times around sicknesses and injury, and of course weight loss. The thing is, hunger drives us. It causes us to seek out food at all costs. The Spiritual hunger should also be natural to those of us who are in Christ. Matthew said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is something that can only come as a result of regeneration. This hunger should drive us to seek out our spiritual nourishment. The problem is a lot of the time we fill our needs, our spiritual needs, with spiritual junk food. Whether it be work, recreation, TV, whatever the case may be, we have a tendency to substitute but if we deprive ourselves of spiritual nourishment, it can lead to problems as well, just like physical hunger can. And those things can be struggling with sin, seeking other things to fill that hunger and a lack of spiritual growth. But Jesus said, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And this hunger can only be satisfied in Christ. He both satisfies us. And this is what's interesting is he keeps us longing for more. John 6, 35 said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he goes on in verse 22 to says, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Matthew says it in this way, blessed are you who mourn. Either way, this weeping and mourning is over a fallen state that we continue to live in. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, this hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, when he's talking about these groanings, okay. That we ourselves, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the spirit, we groan inwardly because we, are, we still live in this fallen state. We still live in this fallen world. And as a result of that, we are going to trip up. We're going to have problems. We're going to make mistakes. And we weep over our sin. Paul talks about the things that I want to do, I find that I don't do, and the things that I do are the things that I don't want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? This is what we weep over. We weep over our sin. How do you know you're saved? Because you weep over your sin. And so, when we talk about Spiritual hunger, weeping over sin. These things are longing. Spiritual hunger causes us to long for the righteousness of Christ. And the weeping that we have causes us to just lament over our sin. But Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And I'll tell you what, what better response to deliverage from bondage than laughter? Verse 23, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Now we think about this seems like contrary to what we say, what being blessed is, right? We want everybody to like us. You know, we want everybody to say, oh, that guy's such a good guy or she's such a wonderful woman and she never does anything wrong. We want people to admire us. We want a good name. But how frustrating is it whenever you do good things and people say that you're evil as a result of it? Can you imagine how frustrating that can be? But Jesus is not saying that it is a virtue to be hated. Because if that was the case, then Adolf Hitler would have a pretty good place in heaven, right? That's not what he's referring to. Jesus said, blessed are you who go through these things on account of the Son of Man. Many hate followers of Christ because we represent something that they don't want to be held accountable for. That's why so many people hate us. Sin hides from light. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, He said, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in, verse, in the, uh, the second part, he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So basically what Jesus is saying here is that we consider, consider ourselves blessed because we're in good company. Not only are we in the company of Christ, but in the company of the prophets as well. You remember back in Acts chapter 5 when the Sadducees had the apostles arrested for preaching and healing people. And then God opened the prison and they went back to preaching. Then the council had them brought before them again and warned them not to preach anymore. But Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And, of course, they wanted to kill him as a result of that. It really made him mad. It didn't go over too well. So they had him beaten, and then they released him. And then the apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Well, then Luke moves on from the blessings to the woes. And I've got three minutes, and I I'll I'll promise you I will get through this. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So basically what Jesus is saying here, um, um, while those who are completely dependent upon the righteousness of Christ, there may be many who are dependent upon their own righteousness not only their own righteousness, but their place here on this earth. These are those who set their things, their their hopes and their dreams and everything that they have on the things of this world. So what did Jesus mean when he said, woe? Okay, that's an interesting word. One commentator said this, one of the most common associations of woe has in the Bible is that of judgment. Saying woe back in these biblical times is almost like, almost like saying, oh no, or alas. In other words, it's showing that something bad is going to happen and that it will not be pretty at all. Interestingly, Jesus used the word more than anyone else in the Bible. For example, Matthew 23, 13 reads, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against man, for you neither go in." yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in this verse starts off a series of verses from matthew 23:13 through 16 in which jesus continually uses the word woe in his condemnation of the scribes and pharisees in this passage roughly seven woes are given and they all condemn those religious leaders for saying and appearing to be righteous when in actuality they were not so, these people have the best of what they will ever get right now. They have nothing to look forward to except judgment unless they repent. And so what Jesus is proclaiming on them is judgment. Let's look at verses 27. I'm going to read through verses 27-36 through 36 real quick. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. What these verses here are describing is the life of a true, regenerate follower of Christ, who has placed no confidence in the things of this earth, but are living according to kingdom principles. That's why they can love their enemies. It's why they can pray for those who abuse them. They can turn the other cheek and they can give away their tunic. They can give with joy and not demand anything back. They can do unto others what they want them to do to them. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But then he goes on to tell us in the next verses not to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or about our bodies, what we will wear. For God knows that we need these things, but that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to us as well. So this is the message of the gospel right here. We are poor and destitute and have nothing to offer. Our only hope is to rely completely on the righteousness of Christ to consider everything else as trivial as compared to that. To place our hope in Christ knowing that we have an inheritance in him that can never fade or perish and to not cling to the things of this earth, but hold everything with an open hand, knowing that God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what we have in Christ.
1: What a blessedness
0: it is to know That although we have nothing to bring to you, that we are poor, naked, blind. We have nothing. Yet you reached down out of glory and you picked us up. You chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you gave us every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And we praise you for that, Father. We thank you for the inheritance that we have in Christ. We thank you that everything that we have, we have in Christ. And I pray, Father, that this will dominate our thoughts, our motivations, and everything that we do in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.